Welcome to Ballers with Babies. I'm Mark Willard. Today we know so much about what athletes and sports personalities do, but not so much about who they are, what makes them tick. What's life like the moment the stadiums and TV cameras go dark? Most go home to their families. We want to know what that after hours experience is like. Ballers with Babies explores their upbringing, their home life, how it's affected by their high profile job, and how that high profile job is affected by the home life. On Ballers with Babies, we talk to some of the most interesting names in sports and find out how they're even more interesting than we realized. And don't worry, diehard fan, we'll get to the important sports questions as well. This is your favorite people like you've never heard them before. I hope you enjoy. All right, let's get CJ Taylor in here on Ballers with Babies. I'm very much looking forward to this one. This one is going to be a fascinating conversation. And CJ, I, I'm not sure I know where to start because your story is so incredible. Uh, your backstory, your son's time with college football, partially at TCU, we'll get to all of that. Uh, but I, I guess we should start with the now. Uh, C.J. Taylor, you're a mom, you're a survivor, and a football coach. Why don't you tell me uh, how we should introduce you? <laughs> I think you did a good job just now. <laughs> if, if anything, I definitely want to be known as um... – a community leader. Bringing people into the basket is very, very important to me. And if I do nothing else in this world but leave a footprint of helping others, then my job has been served. Uh, you've already coached, if I have this correct, you've already coached in Snoop's Football League, right? And then, and what are the goals <laughs> from here uh, as, as far as that is concerned? Um, I recently applied to the Bill Welch Diversity and Coaching in the NFL Fellowship. And so now I'm going through the selection process with the 32 teams to see um, who's going to actually be interested in me. I've actually coached football in a contact setting for about 20 years. In 2005, uh, with the inauguration of the Snoop League, I began coaching. And in 2006, I uh, was hired by him to be a full-time coach on the Junior Pee Wee team, which happened to be the team that my son Kylan was on. And uh, the rest is is history for me. The next step for me was becoming a um, the first female head coach in the Snoop League, and that was an experience within itself. <laughs> and then now you're talking about a, a fellowship at the NFL level, um, and we can get into this a little bit more later on. But I mean, it, what what is the eventual goal? I, and and do you feel able to to coach at the NFL level? Um, as I often say, coaching is teaching, and the very first teacher of a child is the mother. Yes, I do feel that I can coach in the NFL. I've coached uh, 10 years at Bourbon Day High School, which is located in Watts, which is in uh, South Central L.A., mm -hmm. for 10 years where I was actually a JV head coach um, for part of my, my time at Bourbon Day. After that, I went to uh, Los Angeles Southwest College and coached there for two seasons. So I've seen just about everything hmm. <laughs> um, and what I have not experienced is the NFL and I'm, I'm ready for it am I up to the challenge absolutely and I, am I prepared to push myself absolutely but if a graduate student coming out of college is prepared and can go into the NFL um, I got 20 years on me I think I can do it too. <laughs> uh, boy I tell you what because I've read your story I know not to doubt you uh, that that is for sure when you say you've seen it all you really have and we're going to get into some of what you've been through 
But I just want to start by asking you an, an overall umbrella question. How did you do it? Um, my faith is strong and my tenacity is superior. That's how I did it. I believe in picking myself up, knocking the dust off, and keeping it pushing. And in retrospect, I can see that the job that I did was um, was paramount to the person that I am now. But while going through it, you don't know what you're going through when you're going through it. Hmm. So for me, it was living. It was just getting in from day to day. If I if I survive the day, I wake up, uh, thank God, and say, okay, great. He's given me another day and another opportunity to persevere. Then I take that day head on, and that's how my life rolls. Even, even this moment, that's how I roll. I don't always know how the day is going to end, but I do know that I'm going to start my day off every day with inspiration in hopes that I'll be making a better day today than it was the day before. You mentioned your son, Kylin. He ended up playing football at TCU. He's a Rhodes Scholar. He's now at Oxford. I know he's not your only child, but, but t- tell us a little bit more about him. Wow, what can I say? That was my child that actually came into this world right on time. He didn't come a day early. He didn't come a day late. He came right on time. <laughs> the day that he was due, within three hours, he was he was here. Um, he's been a very obedient child, and the great thing about him, and Chase also, and Chase uh, plays, he's a cornerback at the University of Austin. Okay. Uh, um, well, the University of Texas at Austin. He's Got a it. longhorn, hook him horns. <laughs> and... Um, and I'm very proud. I was able to, uh, he was, in, for the 2018 year, he was honored by the AFC um, Good St- Good Works All-State Team. And so he had an opportunity to participate with a community service event with Tim Tebow in the, the New Orleans area. And then we rode the float in the uh, Sugar Bowl parade. And because his team, Texas, made it to the Sugar Bowl, he actually played in the game as well. And um, they were victorious. So it was it was like the cherry on top of the icing to wow. be able to see him play the last collegiate game, you know, um, at the Mercedes Dome um, during the Sugar Bowl. Amazing. Um, let's go back to the beginning for a second so people understand where we're coming from. Uh, you had a very abusive husband, and you're living out in Moreno Valley. You have three children. We had mentioned you have a daughter as well. Describe uh, those days. What what is what is life like at that point? Um. I came from, I come from a really large uh, family, a family that really doesn't believe in in divorce. Um, So I put forth every effort possibly known to man to try and make sure that my marriage worked and that my three children had both the mother and the father in the home. Um, With my ex-husband, he was um, psychologically, um, mentally, financially abusive. He never laid a hand on me. He did not do that. But his words were so cruel and so harsh. Um, I'd often have my stomach tied up in knots, the anxiety, because when I came home, I was never quite sure of what would be waiting for me on the other side of the door. Would he be in a good mood? Would he be in a bad mood? Is he throwing things? What's really going on? And it got to a point that I could not allow my children to see me suffering this level of anxiety, this level of, of being talked to in such a negative manner. And my mindset was that I'd rather raise my children in a household with one loving parent than for them to see two parents that don't love at all. 
that's when it became a no-brainer for me. And from that point forward, I began to plan my exodus from the marriage. This was not someplace that I could stay because it wasn't about what I could do or proving that I was a strong woman, that I could handle it and I could take it. But it was about me being able to show my children that there is better. And in order to see better, you have to do better. In order to do better, I've got to go. So that all becomes too much, and then you you take the family to Compton to live with family, Um, but now you're a single mom. You still want them, at least at the outset, to go to school in Moreno Valley and, and, you know, not upset their their reality. So you drive them what? Did it take about an hour to get to school every morning? Oh, boy. Um, Our drive from the Compton-Carson area was probably, let's see, it was about a 60-mile drive to Moreno Valley. I was in law school at the time, so then I would drive 45 miles back to Orange County to go to law school. Wow. I do my couple of hours at law school. Then I'd drive 45 miles back to their school. After we got out of school, we would go to Taekwondo for two or three hours, and we would do homework sitting at, at a park and then drive back to Carson in the morning. And this this is something that we had done for close to a, a year until I was able to have to get them enrolled in a school um, down in the area. Where we reside, I tell you, yeah, I tell you, I mean, there's so there, there's such absolute dedication there, and you know, I've, I've, I've seen the words of some of the kids who said that when they think back on childhood, they have positive memories. I mean, how, how do you handle day to day realities like that? Uh, But, but sort of whether it's shielding them from it or, or you know, keeping, uh, keeping a positive frame of mind. How? What tools did you use to do that? Oh, boy. They say it takes a village to raise a child, and it does indeed. And in part, football provided a very strong village for us. Um, they did see some negative situations, those I said um, were unavoidable. But for the most part, I wouldn't allow other people to speak negative of their father. I wouldn't be negative about him, and whenever they wanted to share some positive stories um, that they recalled, I would share those stories uh, without an embellishment. So I gave them a healthy dose of reality, but I was very practical, and I always spoke to them age-appropriate, what was necessary and what they could handle at that given time. And they did it. They had a wonderful childhood. We may not have had um, all the riches and wealth that, that some kids uh, that are born with a silver spoon are accustomed to, but I was able to introduce them to music, to culture. We went to a lot of museums, a lot of parks. We tapped into a lot of free resources that were here in the Los Angeles area. So if I had gas in my car to get there, I would take my children to these different things. How did you build athletes? Because I also, you know, I've got three children, and, and we're not talking elite athletes. They're still very young, but I, you know, you're talking about the lack of resources, the lack of time in order to get all the kids from point A to point B. It, it, it seems what you did when people, I think, think about it, it seems impossible. Um, I kept in mind that those three children were my responsibility. The world did not give them to me. I would not allow the world to take them away from me. Everything that they did, we did as one unit. We went to birthday parties together. We went to the park together. We went to the library. We studied together. We did everything together. When the boys started playing football, my daughter, Mai, she started uh, cheering. And when she got too old to cheer in the Snoop League, she began 
being a cheer coach while playing tennis while she was in high school. Um, so we moved as one unit. We moved all the time. And again, when you're going through it, you don't necessarily feel how chaotic it is. It's not until I looked at it on paper that I was like, wow, yeah, I did that? <laughs> My. <laughs> You know, and, and maybe if they're shielded from this, you know, I wanted to ask if you felt like what they endured, uh, whether it be their dad's behavior, the lack of resources, uh, going to bed hungry on, on some days, do you think that that helps create their drive to succeed in sports? Or were they not, as you're saying, not really even aware that what they were going through was hard? They... I don't think they knew that it was hard. They looked at it as life. They understood that life happens and that situations happen. And we kind of grew up together. They knew that I was going to do everything in my power to make sure they were provided for. And sometimes we had to do without certain things um, to sacrifice so that we'd have something for the following day. They were raised where some kids were able to go and get Nike shoes and wear a different pair to school every day. Okay, well, I was taking my kids to pay less. We would get tennis shoes, um, and they had a pair of shacks here and there as well, but they served the same function, and I would talk to them and say, you know what, this is where we are right now. This is where we are. This is a sacrifice we're making for today because we're not looking at what's going on today, the short term. We're looking at our long-term goals. This is where we can be. This is a vast world. There's so many opportunities out there, and we are going to fight to get every single one of them. And uh, a great thing about Kylan, all three of the children, but definitely with Kylan, is that he trusts what I said to him. In this day and age, you don't often find children that really trust or believe their, their parents. But if I said it, he hung off every word, and he expected me to come through, and I came through with flying colors. And look at what I'm doing now. Look at what he's doing now. Look at who he is. It's, I mean, his story was written for a movie. How do you go through having parents that come through a traumatic situation, um, and there's been a lot of trauma? Mm. To you being steadfast in the books, maintaining your GPA, getting a, a, a scholarship to go to college, playing football in one of the most prestigious programs in the nation, and then becoming a, a Fulbright scholar a few years later, a, a, a Rhodes scholar. This doesn't happen. You could not have written this as a script. I'm fascinated by a couple of things that you've said about your ex-husband. I do wonder if there were times where you feared for your safety, for the safety of your children. But at the same time, once you leave, uh, you said, we're not going to speak bad about him. And, uh, and you know, the, the male figure is important as kids are, are growing up. So once you left, what kind of role did he play, or maybe more importantly, what kind of role did at least the, the your kids feel like he was playing in their lives? He played zero life, zero role, hmm. nothing. He didn't pay one dollar of um, of uh, child support. He didn't send presents. He didn't send gifts. He didn't make telephone calls. I got the kids, um, uh, what do you call it, those quick pay phones um, that you load, you preload. <laughs> minutes on it right oh well i got that and i went to court and gave and gave the judge all of their little telephone numbers so he would have access to them to call them if he so desired and even 
so I took out a restraining order on him because he threatened to kill me. He threatened to kill the kids. He did some inhumane things to animals and left dead animals on top of my car. Mm. He had the house shot up. Um, he called Child Protective Services not once, not twice, but on three different occasions to have my kids removed from the home just so he could hurt me. He was in a, um, oh, God, he was in a counseling center, um, a, a counseling session. And in the counseling session, he made threats to my life. The, the um, directors felt that they were real threats. They were threats that he could act out on. So they contacted the police. The police uh, contacted the nearest agency. They came over to my house and said, hey, your ex-husband just made threats on your life. They believe that he will act on it. We have him on a 72-hour cycle. And in the meantime, while he was making those threats, he had picked up a chair and busted out the windows at the counseling facility. So has he been violated? Yes. Has it, did, the, did the threats continue? Yes. So driving down the street, I would always look in the rearview mirror. I would never um, come into a room without knowing how I was going to get out of that room. I never took the same route to any given place. And so my head was continually on a swivel looking to see where is he coming. I mean, at one point he put a hit out on me for a family member of his and some former gang associates to get rid of me, and the kids were optional. Mm. So how do you experience that and decide to not speak ill of him? Because I, I serve an awesome God. And I know that I'll one day have to stand in judgment. And when I do, I need to be able to stand in front of him and, and, and let him know where my transgressions lie. And one thing for certain, I love my children so much that, no, I would not let family members speak ill of him because it's, it's not going to hurt me, but it's going to hurt them. And I'm not going to let you hurt my children. If you think you're going to hurt my children with, with petty conversation, the buck stops right here. So, no, you can't talk about it. And I shield them from the negative things that I was going through with him um, the best way that I was able to until they were actually confronted with the violence themselves. The things that they witnessed, the things that they saw, I couldn't, I couldn't um, shield them from that. So those were when I had the tough talks with them and um, total transparency, spoke to them at a level that they could understand. Continuing with C.J. Taylor on Ballers with Babies. C.J., uh, two, uh, two sons who are college athletes, now a coach herself, and making efforts uh, to get herself into the NFL. C.J., you had a scare 15 years ago, heart surgery, an awful experience while in the hospital where you were assaulted by a male ner- uh, nurse. You fell into depression at that time, did you, I mean, what were you thinking? Did you think that was it? Was that going to be the breaking point? For the first four or six weeks, I was, I, 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 I want to say I was almost in a comatose-like state of mind. He had administered so much morphine into me from the morphine drip that um, I was attached to that the spectrum showed that I was literally unconscious at the time that the drugs were given to me. So it took me a while to come out of that cloud. And when I came out of the cloud, I, I looked and realized I've got three children. If, I, if I'm not strong enough to fight for me, 
I have to be strong enough to fight for them. They didn't ask to come here, and I need to snap out of it real quick and do what I can to be the best parent that I can to them and for them. And the the assault, um, it still bothers me to this day, but why be bitter when you can be better? I took what was a negative situation, and I and I um, regained my power in the situation. I know who the perpetrator is, so there's no need for me to blame every man because every man didn't do it. I know that it was an isolated incident. There's no need for me to hypothesize of what if someone else does this. I don't have time. I threw one big pity party and kept it pushing. And your kids... I mean, I'm sure, you know, with what's going on in your own mind, they had a lot to do with it. But they also, I mean, they physically had a lot to do with pulling you out of that situation, didn't they? There was one particular situation where I'm not certain how the kids were getting back and forth to school. I can only imagine my daughter was probably walking the boys to school because they were all still elementary school. Mm -hmm. And, um, And she was probably you know, preparing little light meals and things of that nature for them. But I was just laying on the sofa in the living room just existing. And um, Kylan, came, Kylan and Mai actually came into the living room, and Kylan was like, Mom, you got to get up. You got to get up. You got to get up. And so he helped me get up, and when I got into the bathroom, he had taken a chair from the dining room area, had placed a a plastic garbage bag over it. It was sitting inside of the bathtub, um, and the bathtub was full of water. And he's like, Mom, take your clothes off. You've got to bathe yourself. And he undressed me. He took my clothes off of me. He sat me down on that chair. And I remember him bathing my body. And as he was bathing me, said, wash your hair. Um, and my hair has always been my pride and glory <laughs> to take care of it. And um, I started to put soap in my hair in the water. And as I was washing my hair, I started crying. Well, actually, I started hearing a sound. And it sounded like crying. And then I realized that that sound was coming from me. And as I was washing my hair, I started feeling strong and feeling empowered and feeling, I felt sorry for myself, but more so sorry for my children because I had detached myself from them for far too long. Okay, I've got through this. Now I've got to, I literally have to keep it pushing. And with that one one bath and with washing my hair, it regenerated me. It, it recharged my battery. It told me that I had more to live for and I need to push for the next day. And so I went on. I mean, the bath sounds like a pretty spiritual experience. Yes. I'm a very spiritual woman. And it was almost a, a rebirthing. It was a, a baptism by spirit and water to remind me that I still had a lot of life to live and that I had three lives that were depending on me to do the right thing, to take care of them so they could thrive. They didn't ask to come here. They're my responsibility, and it was time for me to go ahead and handle it. You've already detailed um, the terror inflicted on 
the entire family by their father 10 years ago. Uh, he was convicted of murdering his girlfriend at that time. Um, how did that that entire experience affect the family? Whew. I, in all honesty, I can say that so tragic it was, and I felt really bad for her, and I reached out to her family to answer any questions for them that I possibly could. I made myself available for them. But a part of me actually felt vindicated because the entire time that I was going through the divorce with my ex-husband and he was stalking and making threats to kill me, other family members, his more so, not mine, um, said that I was being dramatic that I was making more of the situation, that um, I was making it up, that it wasn't true. Um, one person even said, ah, oh, just deal with it. I went through uh, tough times. You'll, you'll get over it or get over yourself. Hmm. Um, and um, I was like, okay, I know. I'm just not dealing with you. I'm cutting you out of my life because I know what it is that I'm going through. So when it happened, I actually felt vindicated. I was like, see, this is what I've been saying the entire time. And one of his friends, a, a dear friend of his, as a matter of fact, um, I contacted that friend maybe a day or two after the uh, initial arrest. And his friend said, oh, my God, I'm, I, I'm so glad that you called me because we all figured it was you because he'd been threatening to kill you for years and we would it up and we would listen to some of the plans that he had to kill you. Hmm. So um, I felt I felt vindicated. As for the kids, they they all still carry a, a certain level of trauma with them from having gone through it. But it makes them know even more so what real love is, what real manhood is, womanhood is, and what they want how and how they want to be perceived in life. You use the word vindicated, and I realize this could be a, a sensitive question, but I, I, I was thinking uh, that when you heard about what happened, even though there was a fatality there, did it cross your mind uh, that it could have been you? Was there was there oh, absolutely yeah? Was there relief? Absolutely. Was it was it a relief almost? The relief came when. The police contacted me, and they let me know that he had been arrested. Then I went to court a, a, maybe two days or a weekend, a couple of days later, um, for his arraignment because I needed to make sure that it was actually him because he and his father have the same name. And, um, and I... And I when I was leaving out of the house that morning, the kids were like, Mom, where are you going? I'm like, I have an errand to run. And um, they said, well, we're coming with you. They had concern for me. So they rode all the way out to Fontana with me. And uh, they saw him in court, and that was probably the first time, gosh, eight, nine years, nine years that they'd seen a man that looks just like them in an orange jumpsuit um, with handcuffs and it was only then that I was at ease because 
because I knew that they had the right person in custody, and I, I wouldn't have to worry about him coming after me or coming after the kids again. For him to come after me, I was like, okay, I got you. We can fight. We can do this. I got I. I, I can go head to head with you, but to threaten my children and they're all spread across the city going to different schools at different times, that was frightening. And there have yeah. been times when he had come to the school um, and I had just gotten a, a restraining order from him. It was pretty early on when I had left him. And I went up to the school, dropped off the restraining order so that each of the schools would have copies of it. And when I went back to pick the kids up, the school um, pulled me to the side and let me know good things that I had bought the restraining order because he had came into the office. He had asked to check the kids out of school early. Um, and they had the restraining order say, no, you can't. And then he tore up the office and then jumped in his car and left. Wow. 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 Um, it's just amazing. It's amazing to hear all of this and realize the success that is on the other end of it. And, um, you know, I wanted to talk about that as well. I mean, you know, let's talk about Kylin's successes uh, for a minute, um, just <laughs> even over the years, right? I mean, he was accepted to 19 colleges. I know he yes. started at Marist. And, mm -hmm. you, yeah, you mentioned the Fulbright Scholarship. I mm -hmm. want to know, as these things come in, Rhodes Scholar, acceptance to universities, after all you had been through, there had to be a moment of an emotional outburst, right? Like, how do you receive that news? Um, whew. My emotional outburst didn't actually come until uh, he graduated from college. Before then, I was cool as a cucumber. <laughs> I remember coming out of high school, he applied to 25 colleges and got accepted to 19. And, and people were like, well, he only needs to go to one. And I look at not just him, but my philosophy in, in general is that when you do more, you give yourself more opportunities. Um, and the, the kids that I coach, the kids that I mentor, the kids that I've sent to college, I always tell them, you've got to apply to at least a dozen colleges. Because if you apply to a dozen and half of them accept you, now we can sit down and look at who has the best financial aid package, who has the best scholarship opportunity, who has your major. It gives you more more to work towards. So applying to one or two schools, no, that's unacceptable. In the same way with Chase, Chase applied to 29 schools, got into 25. Mm. Um, education is paramount. I often tell people when it, within, my, within my Taylor family, that um, education is the family business. We believe in going to college. We believe in getting advanced degrees. We believe in waking up each morning and determining for ourselves how many zeros and commas in front of the decimal. That's how you create wealth. We can all agree that Kobe is rich. <laughs> he owns he owns houses and cars and properties and businesses. Um, and while playing for the Lakers, we can agree that Kobe had a good contract, so he's definitely rich. But the man that signs his check is wealthy. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. Um, that is, uh, that's very well said. You know, and I, you know one thing that I, I noticed that is a common thread, Kylan's story sounds like, I mean, obviously Chase is all of yours. Um, is the way to accept challenges. You know, even even Kylan's uh, football career, you know, he was excited to go get started, and then what happens, he gets hurt. And he ends up, uh, you know, doing uh, 
uh, thankless work for the team instead of what he thought he was going to do, which was which was play ball. What what do all of you have in the way of a process when a challenge presents itself? Um, because you all seem to do so incredibly well. It really is. At first, um, we're very faith-based. I love my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I speak to Him continually, and I know that a lot of the things that have occurred in our life could not have occurred without divine intervention. God's hand was in the mix. I know that I have a, a strong um, world compass of doing the right thing. I know that I, that kids saw me when they were young doing community service and helping other people, how I would feed somebody else a child before I would feed them, how I would give somebody a ride when I didn't even have enough gas to really get back home. And we ran out of gas a whole lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, man. but um Service to humanity is very important, and I really feel that if I take care of God's people, He's going to take care of me, and I hold God accountable for that. I don't. I didn't always know how we were going to eat. Didn't always know how we were going to get someplace. But I had enough faith in knowing that if I got there, He was going to see to it that I made it back. And the kids saw my faith in action. So it was contagious. There's no way in the world they couldn't function within it. And then uh, there have been many times where Kylan will call me and say, Mom, I need you to pray for me. And he'll be very specific in what it is he wants me to pray for. Mm -hmm. Because he's like, Mom, I know your prayers get through to heaven. They don't stop at the ceiling. (laughs) (laughs) I need you to to pray for me. And he'll also say, I don't know exactly know how this prayer thing works, but it's been working for my mom. Yeah. There's some people that seem to be a little better at it than others. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm, and I'm not, I'm not afraid of the gospel. I'm, I believe that I'm equally yoked where I'm not so sanctified that I, that I'm not in touch with, what people go through. I'm, I'm very obtainable, very, very down to earth, very humble. I'm very, very humble. Um, and even now, I, I, I kind of feel uncomfortable in talking about myself hmm. because I don't want it to seem as if I'm being bolsterous because that's not who I am, nor is that what I'm about. But I am about helping anybody, everybody at all times. And God will take care of me. And the kids have seen how I function in my faith. And they uh, do the same. And one of the really big things, again, is the fact that they trust me blindly. If I tell them, hey, I need you to go to the left, hop on one leg, and then cross the street, they'll do that because they'll believe that by telling them to do that, there's something positive in the spiritual realm that's going to be waiting for them when they get to the other side. The home stretch with C.J. Taylor here on Ballers with Babies. And you know what really strikes me, C.J., is you've got these boys who – went off to play football and played it obviously at a very high level, but it also seems like uh, their destinies uh, in their careers uh, maybe are for things maybe even bigger than football. And now here we are. Who's the one that's going to end up working in football? And it's you. (laughs) I know the irony of that. We've been working towards towards the NFL as a a backdrop goal. Now, Mama's going to be the one that'll probably make it to the NFL, and that's okay. They, I have their full support. Let's let's get to the. I want to learn more about this. When so from from start to finish, when did it start that you, you know your boys are playing? But 
how did it even become an idea that you were going to coach? And then, and then how has that led you to this point? In 2005, the year that the Snoop League started, the head coach of, of um, Kylan's team, he had two assistant coaches, and then I was actually his team mom. And one of the coaches was getting married, so they said that they were going to be gone for like the next two weeks. Um, and we're leaving you the team, coach it. <laughs> um, Okay, I've got 25 little boys out here (laughs) that are coming to practice every night. I've got a coach. Well, I knew I've always been a sports girl, so I I knew the basics of football, so that that wasn't a problem for me. But I realized for as much as I was coaching them and teaching them how much the kids didn't actually know, they didn't actually understand, they didn't understand the functionality of why the, the guard is where he is, and and why the tackles are where they are and what their what their responsibilities were. So I broke it down into kindergarten science to make anybody be able to understand what a, a quarterback is, which is one fourth and a halfback and a fullback. I mean I broke it down in such small increments that the kids their eyes opened and once their eyes opened when we began calling plays they understood, you know, odd numbers go in one direction, even numbers going in the, just little small things. Um, and I realized that the coaching is teaching aspect was something that I actually enjoyed. And then the, uh, the following year, the team that I was coaching with, I was coaching as a secondary coach, and we had made it all the way to the uh, semifinals. And we were playing a game at the uh, Los Angeles Coliseum. And as we were walking through the tunnel in the Coliseum, I don't know, I was looking at all the images, and I was like, wow, how many women have actually walked through here? Wow, this is so awesome. This is so neat. And I kept walking until I got to the 50-yard line, and um, one of the coaches said, hey, Coach CJ, turn around. We'll take a picture of you. You're standing on the 50-yard line in the in the Coliseum. And I'm looking at the Olympic torch from 1932, and it was so big <laughs> that I quietly said, wouldn't it be neat if I could actually coach in the professions, professional football league here? Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> so that's when, that's when the dream was kind of born. That's when the dream was born. But being a woman in sports, particularly in football, that that dream was a, a vision that just wouldn't occur because that had never occurred. Sure. So that sure. wasn't even that wasn't even obtainable. It wasn't even it wasn't even realistic. But though it wasn't realistic, it didn't stop me from you know, having that quiet whisper in the back of my head saying, "Maybe you can do it. Maybe you can do it." Well, now I feel I've paid my dues. I've coached. I've coached um, in, in the Snoop League. I've coached in a private all boys school in Watt. I've coached at a junior college. I've I've come up the ranks. I have a good reputation with the coaches in the Los Angeles area, and actually across the nation because I've done a, a, quite a bit of um, recruitment in helping kids get out of high school and into college. So I've got I've a, I've um, built a good name for myself, and um, I'm ready. If they're going to pick a woman in 2019, if any one of the 32 teams is going to take another woman, um, why not be me? I tell you what, why not? Although here here's one thing I I'm sure would be asked of you 
if you ever ended up, you know, let's say you're sitting there interviewing with the Los Angeles Rams or something, I, I'm sure that they would ask you, okay, you've got um, millionaires in their late 20s and 30s, professional NFL players. Um, mm-hmm. How is it that you feel they would listen to you? How would you plan on getting to them? <laughs> Number one, everybody listens to their mama. <laughs> <laughs> that's true who doesn't just uh, just out of out of respect for me as a woman they're going to listen to me and not only are they going to listen to me but they're going to want to literally hang off of every word that comes out of my mouth because I do have a story because I've gone through it because I can identify with some of the challenges that they've gone through so I know where they're coming from. I know how to read the inflection of a young man. When I see his eyes in a, in a certain way, I know if he's feeling positive, if he's feeling negative, if I need to go over there, put a hand on his shoulder and say, let me talk to you. And if I can't straighten it out, can I pray for you? I know that's conventional, but maybe we need to still have some humanity in the game. I believe that the NFL not only can handle it, not only do they need it, but the NFL probably quietly wants it. It's definitely sports. It's definitely a business. But when a person feels good about who they are and what they're about, they're going to perform a lot better. I can inspire. Yeah, yeah. And you just used the word need. You said the NFL needs this, and I wanted to ask you that. Why is it important, in your opinion, in your words, for, for female leaders to emerge in this space? Um. I don't necessarily think that the NFL needs women. I think the NFL needs good coaches. I think empathy is important. I think understanding is important. I think character is important. There are certain innate qualities that women, that I'm generalizing, but many women bring with them. And I could see this being a help to the NFL. A lot of these guys, they're out there, they're playing every day, they've got money problems, they've got stress problems, um, they've got image problems. Well, let them see what finer womanhood looks like. <laughs> let them see, let them know the, the difference. Not everybody is a trap queen. You know, they need to see positive female images in the same way that they see positive male images and not necessarily always shaking pom-poms, which is nothing's wrong with that because I was a college cheerleader. <laughs> so I have no problem with that. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Yes. I'll still pick up a pair of pom-poms. <laughs> um, CJ, you're clearly on a mission. And I and I wonder how you describe that miss uh, that that mission. What is the message that you're trying to share with the world? Hmm. We need a lot more kindness in this world. I think we need to be a lot nicer to each other. It starts with, and I know football is, I'm not asking anybody to dial it back because when it comes to coaching, I'm a pit bull. I'm out there. I'm in your face. I'm dropping down in a three-point stance. I'm firing off. I, <laughs> I, I, I might be a little salty. <laughs> so, I'm, so it's not flowers and daisies and, and, and skipping rope. But, but we still can have class, and, and, and deme- our, our demeanor can still be positive off the field. And we need to, I, think, I think the NFL needs to present itself with a better image. 
that comes with community service. It comes with going out and um, being engaged with the community, speaking um, to youth programs, and um, giving back. CJ, what a wonderful experience to get to talk to you. Um, I know you're looking to inspire. You certainly did here. And um, my goodness, I can't wait to continue to hear about all of your successes and continue to wish you the absolute best and uh, and pray for more of all of the, that you're putting out in the world to continue to come back to you. Thank you so much for spending this time with me today. And thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. God bless. 